back in Genesis 25, we're told this is the genealogy of Isaac. And what follows from there is largely the story of Jacob. And here we have something similar. This is the history of Jacob. That's what it starts out saying. And what's going to follow through to the end of Genesis is largely the story of Joseph. And so we see here these um, genealogies or these family histories, and they're bracketed or they're started um, by saying, here's the, here's the history of Isaac, and then we hear a whole bunch about Jacob. Here's the history of Jacob, and we hear a whole bunch about Joseph. And I think we're invited to see this strong connection between the father and the son, the perpetuation of the seed, the godly seed being perpetuated uh, throughout um, history. Here is the history of Caleb, cut to Zeke's life. Here is the history of Carrie, cut to Jack's life. There's this connection between uh, the godly offspring and uh, the ungodly offspring we have with you know, Esau and Ishmael and, and all of these other, uh, uh, the, Can the Canaanites and things like this. But here, we've moved on from Esau's family history and we're moving on back to Jacob and we're going to get the story of Joseph. And in the story of Joseph, uh, today I kind of want to do a bit more of a broad look at it, and, and then we'll kind of zoom in on some of the parts of this chapter particularly. But with the story of Jace, uh, Joseph, all the threads of Genesis are, come together. They start to really kind of uh, form a picture of what uh, Genesis uh, is about. In Joseph, we are going to see uh, him become a blessing to the nations, which is what was promised to Abraham. And Joseph, we're going to see him become a king, which is what was promised uh, to Jacob. In Joseph, we're going to see a lot of food associated with salvation and redemption, which at the beginning of Genesis, what happens with food there? It's the exact opposite. It's associated with damnation and exile. And we have this at the beginning and the end of uh, Genesis. In Joseph, we're going to see what a faithful son looks like. We will see, we will see J Joseph as a faithful brother, where Genesis is filled with brothers in conflict. And we have that here as well. And we're also going to see Joseph as a faithful servant. In Joseph, we see many of the conflicts throughout Genesis resolved in his person. And we will see that these things, they come about not through chance, not through Joseph's skill and exertion and uh, uh, the swiftness of his legs, to, to quote the wisdom literature, but through the sovereignty of God, things that no one could orchestrate, but God could. And, and so we see God's sovereignty really uh, highlighted in the story of, of Joseph. Today is Palm Sunday, and the lesson of Palm Sunday is the same as our passage, which is this, that the king must suffer before he's crowned. The king has to die before he rules. It happens to Joseph, and it happens to Christ. The story of Joseph, Joseph is really kind of the clearest typological um, example of Christ that we have in Genesis. It's just bursting at the seams. It's like the spirit is eager to show us what Genesis is all about. So it really comes into uh, focus here with, uh, with Joseph. I'm, I'm fond of quoting Isaiah where the spirit says, I've declared the end from the beginning. 
well, this is what the end is all about. In the, in the end of the book of beginnings, we get the end of being proclaimed, which is the dying and rising Messiah who restores all things. That's what the Joseph narrative gives us. And that is what that is who Jesus is. By the end of Genesis, Joseph is sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, ruling over the Gentiles. He is a clear type of Christ, and he had to suffer beforehand, and he had to figuratively die beforehand before he becomes exalted in this um, story. And so that suffering, that dying, is what this passage is about. We could call this Joseph's passion, the passion of Joseph, the suffering of Joseph. And so I want to kind of just review a few of the uh, more obvious things that are going on that uh, anticipate the suffering that Jesus is going to um, uh, receive at the end of, of Holy Week. This is here anticipated uh, with our passage. Um, and one of the main ways that we see this is his relationship to his brothers or, or, or what, how his brothers treat him. Um, they are murderous and they, were, they are envious. We are told three times in the passage, um, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 8, how, what do they, how do they feel about their brother? What does it say? There's three times in the passage. Any of you kids? Well, how do they feel about their brother? They hate him. It says, they, it says that they hate him. They hate him. And then we're told in verse 11 that they, they envied him. So these things go together as well. And this is the background in, in, in Genesis that we have with Cain and Abel. This is, um, this is seen in verse 8 when it says, So they hated him even more uh, for his dreams and his words. And the, the Hebrew there... Uh, does anybody remember what the word, what Joseph's name means? It, what? Mm -mm. It, uh, Rachel says, uh, God will give me another son. Joseph means uh, he increases or he will add. And so um, there's actually a play on words here when it says that they hated him even more. It's, uh, it's they increased in their hatred. They added hatred of Joseph to them. They yasafed Yosef. And so there's this kind of play of, on words of the word to increase or to add. They added their hatred to the added son uh, or to the one who adds or the one who increases. So um, we also, the chronology is kind of difficult here, but we know that Jacob's brothers are already brother murderers. When have they done this before? They've killed a lot of their brothers before. Mm -mm. Yeah, in Shechem. What happens, what, what, the Shechemites, they get circumcised. If, you're circum if somebody gets baptized, what are they? They become part of the family of God. They're your brother, they're your sister. In the Old Covenant, if somebody got circumcised, they were your brother or your sister. They, they became part of the covenant of God. And Joseph's brothers killed those men. Those were their brothers. So Joseph's brothers are already brother murderers, if, if indeed that chronology lines up. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, but that, that's, a, that's already something we see here. And now they're planning on murdering Joseph. They plot or they conspire to slay him. And the word that's used there is kind of this illicit form of killing. Uh, it's the same word that's used of Cain slaying Abel. 
It's like a ruthless killing. So Joseph's brothers are brother murderers like Cain and like the people who killed um, Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus experiences with the chief priests and with the elders. These are his brothers and they are envious of him and they hate him and they conspire uh, to kill him. Uh, <laughs> and Pilate, he, he, uh, they have this tradition of letting a criminal go. And he says this to them. He's, he, Pilate is constantly, you can tell there's this tension between him. He doesn't like these chief priests. Um, at least that's the subtext, I think. He, and he says this. He goes, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? <laughs> like he, he uses the phrase, right? King of the Jews. This is the thing that, they, that they're putting him on trial for. And then it says, this is, Mark gives us this comment, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate saw, he saw that they were envious of him. And they wanted to kill him. They hated him. So we see that this is anticipated in the story of Joseph. Uh, we also see Joseph's brothers mocking him, right? And this is something that Jesus um, experienced. Uh, when, when Joseph is coming towards his brothers, what do they sarcastically say? Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer, right. And they, it's actually, here comes the Lord of dreams. Here comes the master dreamer. The, the word there is Baal, Baal. Um, and so they're mocking him. And they're mocking his, uh, his dreams. They're saying that um, his dreams are fables. His dreams are ridiculous figments of his imagination. God is not speaking to him through a dream. Um, and he certainly doesn't speak to our ridiculous younger brother. God doesn't speak to Joseph through dreams. And this is something that is said in the Gospels of Jesus. A prophet is uh, without honor in his hometown. And all of you have spoken prophetically to your families, and you can attest to this. You know this is how the prophetic is um, received. So they're mocking him. They, they have set themselves up. Joseph has this dream, says it, relays it prophetically, implying that it's from God. And they say, they judge that it's certainly not from God. And Cal John Calvin has this hilarious remark about the brothers of Joseph. He says, it often happens that those who are not well disposed toward God are nevertheless quick to perceive God's will. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Um, I mean, it's so true. I guess I, I find it funny because we've experienced this. We'd, we've seen people who are like this. Nothing's changed, right? Um, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And this is what happens. This is precisely what happens by the end of the story. So Joseph is vindicated, and his vindication comes through dominion. So his brothers decide to kill him, decide to throw him into a pit. And what's the remark at the end? This is still kind of in the idea of mocking. What do they say? We shall, we, we shall see what becomes of his dreams. Let's kill him, and then let's see what his dreams have to say, right? You can't be king if you're dead, right? It reminds me of that scene in The Matrix where Cypher's about ready to unplug Neo. He goes, how can he be the one 
if he's dead, right? That's what Joseph's brothers are saying. How can these dreams come to pass if you're dead in a pit? You can just feel their, you can feel their, their animosity towards him. And these are the kinds of taunts that Jesus experienced while he's on the cross. He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So we see Joseph receiving this ironic mockery from his brothers, just as Jesus received this. I mean, it's so deep with this kind of, um, they're exactly wrong. They couldn't be any more wrong. And God just orchestrates these scenarios where people are so, so sure that they're right, but they are so wrong and they are set against God in this moment. And that serves as a warning for us. It serves as a warning for us that there are Christians who think that they are Elijah mocking Baal, when in reality, they're Joseph's brothers mocking Joseph. And, it, and we don't want to be in that position. We don't want to be in the position of scoffers where, we, where somebody may relay to us, what is a dream but a kind of prophecy? We don't want to be in the position of this is ridiculous and you're a ridiculous person. I'm going to mock you because of it. There are large groups of Christians who do this kind of thing. And so we don't want to be in those, we don't want to be in those positions. The, the, um, Douglas Wilson has written a book on the serrated edge, and it's a great recovery, and it pushes against um, uh, evangelical niceness, because we don't want to be nice. We do want to be loving and kind, but we don't necessarily want to be nice. And the prophets in Jesus employ sarcasm and mockery and all these kinds of things, but it is an art, and it takes wisdom to do. It's not... Uh, it's not something that you can just pick up one day. It, it's, it's, and I think the suffering aspect is a big part of that. If you have not suffered, you probably shouldn't engage in the serrated edge. Like it, it's, a, it's a part of learning how to um, dismantle things that are untrue. And if you haven't suffered, I, you're in some ways reaching towards something that you have not earned or you, you, you don't know how to handle. Mm-hmm. Um, so God gives us these things, but people can, be, can use them wrongly and can be on the wrong side. They can have a serrated edge, and they're directing it towards God. Uh, I would also, Calvin's commentary on this is, is, is phenomenal because he just frames it as Joseph's brothers are just raging against God right now. Okay, um, so another thing that, that really kind of anticipates Christ is that the father sends the son to check on his brothers, right? The father sends the son and the ones who are looking over the flock. Would you go check on your brothers who are watching the flock? This is a picture of Jesus. This is a picture of the father sending Christ to his brothers. And prior to that sending, though, we do have this moment where (laughs) Joseph comes back to the father with a bad report. And if you read certain commentaries, Commentaries are really interesting because it's like the more modern they get, the more they want to trash the patriarchs. And then the older they get, the more they're like, these guys were awesome. 
I mean, they're, they're, they, 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 they rightly, I can't think, see their sins. But so like modern commentaries will say that Joseph was being a tattletale or that he was straight up just lying, that this bad report was just a straight up lie. But I think that goes totally against the grain of everything we know about his brothers and everything we know about Joseph. Um, it's just because this phrase, bad report, is usually associated with um, uh, uh, lies or, or it's, it's more... Um, has negative connotations to it. But taken typologically, I would view that as almost like a prophet. A prophet returns to the father and he comes back with a bad report about the sons. And, and Jesus' parables are like this, right? It's like there's a master of a vineyard and he sends his son. And that's, that's really kind of like, this is not a parable, this is history, but it's very similar. The father sending his son to his brothers and his brothers want to kill him. We have kind of Jesus uh, anticipated here. And then what is, when he sends him, what, is, what does Joseph say? This is, again, this is couched in the prophetic. This is why I don't think uh, he was a liar or, or lying about his brothers. He says, I'm gonna, I wanna send you. And then Joseph says, here am I. Here am I, send me. Just like Isaiah says. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Same thing as said, Moses does the same thing, here I am. And uh, Samuel does the same thing as well when God is speaking while he's sleeping. Yes, sir? I'm pretty sure Ezekiel did something like that. Yeah, okay. So it's another prophet. It's just grouped in this prophetic, right? God speaks and there's a prophet who's sent to the people. Yeah, that's, yeah I'm sure that's probably there too. I wasn't able to see that, but that would make sense. Yeah, good. And in it, when God had God's angel or something that touched Ezekiel's lips, was the coal. I'm pretty sure after that, God like said, who shall I send? And Ezekiel had said something. Yeah, that's Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah, that's Isaiah. But yeah, that's good. Good memory. Okay, and then what is, all this, what is all this related to? What are they so angry about? What are the dreams about? The dreams are about what? Down, down to Joseph. Right, it's, a, it's about dominion. It's about who has the authority. It's, this, it's, a, it's, it's a power dynamic thing. And that's what they're upset about. God gives this prophetic revelation that Joseph will be the ruler and if we take this in a typological sense, the dreams as this prophetic revelation, your brother will rule over you. We might think of all of the Old Testament as this kind of prophetic revelation to the brothers of Israel that the Messiah would rule over them, that Jesus will rule over them. The laws and the prophets are all testifying to this, and they reject it, and they're angry about it. And Jesus himself, he says to his brothers, before Abraham was, I am. He's telling them these things. Not only is he king, but he's this God king. He's God. It's doubly offensive to them. One of their brothers can't be God. <laughs> and then this is the question that, that he's put on trial for. It's Jesus' kingship. Pilate, Pilate says this. Are you a king? And Jesus just profoundly and enigmatically replies, you yourself say I'm a king. <laughs> Only God himself could think of such a brilliant, ingenious response. You yourself say. 
<laughs> oh man. So that's that's what he's on trial for, and this is the thing that um, this, this is what Pilate writes the, uh, on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then the Jews, the, the chief priests, they come to him. They say, could you please change this? Could you please change this to say this man said he was king of the Jews? And Pilate, who hates these guys, he says, I, what I've written, I've written. Right? He leaves it. So it's about kingship. It's about rule. It's about dominion. And, and this is the kind of point of antagonism between Joseph and his brothers and between Jesus and his brothers. The issue of kingship prophetically communicated. The brothers couldn't discern what the prophet was saying. Jesus' brothers couldn't discern what the prophets were saying. Okay, so we have two dreams here, uh, and we'll get into this next week or maybe the week after, but there's two dreams that Joseph has, and that's significant in the story, but I just want to point out that we have two dreaming Josephs in Scripture. And both of these Josephs, Joseph uh, the son of Jacob and then Joseph the husband of Mary, they have these dreams, and then what happens immediately after? They move from the promised land to... Egypt, both of them, it, they have this similar trajectory. Um, and, the, and we're also, there's this interesting bit where uh, Joseph communicates the dreams and Jacob rebukes him, which is kind of strange. It's very strong language of rebuke. But then at the end, it says he kept these things in mind, which is a very terrible translation. The, a literal translation would be he guarded the word. That's a better translation. It's the same word that's used of Adam to keep the garden, to guard the garden. And then the word devar, it can be matter or thing, but word would be appropriate. And it's the same phrase that's used of Mary when the shepherds come and they say everything that was revealed to them from heaven about Jesus as the Christ. And she says, and it says she guarded the word or she kept these things in her heart. And so um, it's interesting. Perhaps J Jacob was he knew that this was going to be antagonistic to his brothers. So he rebuked Joseph to alleviate their antagonism as almost this way of protecting Joseph. Again, Calvin is phenomenal here. He, he's, he's like, let, you know, let the heathen rage, let the evil man rage. Do, never censor truth, you know, um, but that's possibly an explanation. But anyway, I think it's important that guarding, guarding of the word. Uh, then we have this picture of a sacrificial animal here. We have uh, his brothers in verse 23. What does it say? Verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic uh, in Leviticus 1, that same phrase is used of skinning an animal for sacrificing it. And this tunic idea, we'll, we'll get into this, but this goes all the way back to the garden as well. This is, this is um, the tunics that were given to Adam and Eve, and that is suggestive of the sacrifice that's needed for the sin. Now Joseph is being this sacrifice. He's being skinned. It's being removed from him. And this not only happens once, but it happens twice in the story. 
where's the second time that Joseph is stripped of his tunic? Not from his brothers, but from who? Potiphar's. Right, Potiphar's wife. She strips him of his tunic. It's again the sacrificial animal um, uh, imagery. And then they dip, they, they, and then it just, it piles on. They dip it in blood. It's a sacrificial animal. They dip it in blood. They bring it to their father. And we'll get into this in another, another sermon. But this representation of them bringing it to their father and deceiving Jacob, if in fact Jacob was deceived, but they bring it to their father and it's this kind of deception. But it... <laughs> There's so much packed into this. Jacob does the same thing to Isaac. It's this picture of Golgotha. It's this picture of a sacrifice presented to the father. That's what Jacob putting on the skin of, of an animal to Isaac does. And then they bring the skin of an animal to the father here as well. So uh, we have this sacrificial animal. And then both Jacob and, and the brothers say this when they're, they're saying, this is what we'll say what happens. Um, what, what does Jacob say? What, what's, what's the conclusion? Surely been torn. And then what happened to him? By a wild beast. Surely a wild beast has devoured him. Uh, or that's at least what the brothers say. And he says, so... I, I don't know, but I mean, a wild beast, if, if he thought that is, I can't imagine that he wouldn't think that his sons did this, especially if the Shechemite incident had occurred before this. And this is, could be a euphemistic way of him saying, you guys did this. A wild beast has devoured my son. Um, right, right. Yeah, it's this kind of double entendre. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm reading between the lines. Um, but what we do know is that um, this picture also brings the garden forward. This is the, the beast of the serpent wounding the Christ. Uh, the wild beast is devouring him. This is, this is revelation again. There's a, there's a dragon waiting for the child to be born to devour him. And so we have this uh, Satan-Christ dynamic through different kinds of a sacrificial animal and an evil beast wanting to devour him. So Satan wounding Christ's heel is, I think, uh, attendant with this imagery. All right, we got a couple more things here. Uh, he's thrown into a uh, cistern, which is a place for catching water, and it says that there was no water in it. Um, and I guess the only point that I had on that is, I mean, this is clearly a picture of death. Um, and Jesus from the grave is the living water. He, he comes out, he brings water to where there is no water in this well of a sorts. But in your reading, was that Zechariah? It says something about um, bringing life out of the waterless pits or something like that, which is, uh, uh, I think, what this is anticipating. He's also sold for silver. Jesus is sold for silver. Uh, it's different amounts. He, Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus is sold for 30. It's interesting if we look at extra biblical uh, uh, evidence that he is sold for the price that we see in like Babylonian uh, slavery prices. So, um, and then he sold for 20 pieces of silver. And this is the amount of time that Jacob spent um, with Laban, 20 years. 20 years he worked, it was seven years for each wife and then six years for that additional uh, uh, sheep 
uh, negotiation that they had. And then lastly, we got sons from the east again. We got these Ishmaelites, we got these Midianites. And what are they bringing? They're bringing spices, they're bringing myrrh. What does this remind us of? The Magi, the, the men from the east coming to visit Christ. We, and, and we'll get into all this uh, uh, in another one. But again, we have this kind of anticipation. The sons of the east are somehow connected to this Christ figure, which in the Christ story, they come to worship him. In this story, they are um, buying him and selling him. Okay. So here in the person of Joseph, we have the life and passion of Christ foreshadowed. The lesson of Palm Sunday is that true kingship only comes through suffering. All who want to rule well will suffer. And this is what separates the sons of Jacob from the sons of Esau, right? The sons of Esau go immediately into ruling and reigning. But we go into the sons of Jacob and he has to suffer. And he suffers a lot before he rules. They bypass the suffering. And this is what Jesus is tempted with, right? In the, in the desert, he's tempted with this. Just bow down to me and I'll give you all these things. But he's like, nope, I need to go through the cross first. The same dynamic is there with Saul and David. Did David have any trials or tribulations or suffering before he became king? Nope, nothing like that is recorded. Did David? You bet. That's a huge part of the narrative is the suffering before he becomes king where he could have killed Saul. <laughs> right, he's presented with a similar temptation. That grasping at something that doesn't, that isn't his to take, it's his to receive when God gives it to him. That's right. We're all familiar with Joseph's statement to his brothers after he's king, and he, he reveals himself to his brothers. He says famously, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive, right? So when Jesus's brothers meant this evil against him, you can't upend the purposes of God. They meant it for evil. God meant it for the salvation of the world. Their trespass has become our salvation. But there are other levels of God's providence at work here that I want to touch on, and then, and then we'll end. We'll be finished. And uh, I, it's, it's pretty much just a quote from St. Chris, uh, Chrysostom. He, um, he recognizes God's providential grace on Joseph's life in a way that we may not readily uh, perceive. And he begins by talking about Joseph's wrongful imprisonment, with his interactions to um, Potiphar's hashtag me too wife. And then he moves to his wrongful imprisonment from his brothers um, or throwing into the pit. And I think this is worth uh, reading in full. He says, for it was better for him, this is about Potiphar's wife, for it was better for him to keep company with human creatures in miserable plight than with a maddened mistress so that the fact was not that he got into prison, but that he got out of prison. His going to jail was actually a deliverance. That's, how, that's what Chrysostom is saying. He was delivered from this maddened mistress. Chrysostom continues, again, his brethren sold him 
but they freed him from having enemies dwelling in the same house with him, from envy and much ill will, and from daily machinations for his ruin. They placed him far aloof from them that hated him. For what can be worse than this, to be compelled to dwell in the same house with brethren that envy one, to be an object of suspicion, to be a mark for evil designs? So that while they and she were severally seeking to compass their own ends, far other were the mighty consequences working out by the providence of God for that just man. When he was in honor, then he was in danger. When he was in dishonor, then he was in safety. <laughs> so his brothers, by this, by this meaning evil against him, God delivers, he delivers them from, from them. Joseph has these dreams of being a ruler over his brothers. And now Joseph finds himself in this water pit that has no water in it. And he's sold into slavery. So the way up is down. And that's what Palm Sunday and Holy Week are about. Here comes the king. He must suffer. He must die. Then he ascends. That is the way of Christ and the way of the Christian. Let's pray. The charge is this, lean into your suffering, own your suffering, suffer well. Suffering and death is how God exalts a man. The way up is down, the exalted places are given to the lowly. So pick up your cross so that you will know how to use the scepter. Suffer, die, and rule. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.